0: Good morning, hope you're doing well. Um, if you're here for the first time with us, we uh, are glad that you're here. Um, we are in a study called The Journey, and if you uh, are here for the first time, we want to make sure you get one of these. So if you will, just walk right now, it's no big deal, back to this back table, the info table. These books are on there, and you're going to need this actually for the entire year. This this is the, uh, the book for the year, well, I should say outside of the Bible, um, this is the book for the year. Every day, we have a Bible reading plan in here so that you go. It tells you what day you go to it. Um, and, you know, it, let's see here. It tells you what day to read and you can write things. And then every six days, you'll have a place where you can write sermon notes. This was the first sermon notes I took. Um, I didn't preach that day. Um, so you can write all the sermon notes. And every six days, it there's, there's, uh, tells you what to read. And then you also uh, bring it here and you study um, throughout the week, what's going to be preached on each Sunday? So every six days, um, we are going, you're, you're reading in Matthew and Acts and the Psalms and Proverbs, is that right? No, and Genesis. And as you're reading those, um, We're going to pick some of those psalms for the month of January, and we're going to preach through those. So this week you read ten through sixteen, and I'm going to preach in Psalm fifteen today. And then next week we'll start up again. We'll keep going. So we want to make sure you get one of these. Um, Also, we've noticed that it's a little bit difficult to uh, keep your place in the journey, and so we've ordered some bookmarks. There's a bunch of them back there on the table. Keep that and stick it in your journey so that it's really easy for you each week to be able to find your place in there. Also. The, the, the awesome thing about this bookmark is it reminds us of our two things that we pray for mainly all the time, which is the unreached people group, the Atani people group, and the Horn of Africa. And it has a little place highlighted where they are, but also uh, our, our focus on the Winthrop campus. So grab one of these as well, stick it in your journey book, and uh, keep reading. I invite you, I say this uh, quite often, but make sure that you, you read this, this first little letter from Jack and I. Um, in the beginning of the book, because it'll help you understand that this is not a legalistic exercise whatsoever. We're wanting you to get the most out of it um, at the pace that you're able to, but more so than anything, uh, we want you to see Christ and, and, and grow in your in your love for Jesus as you do this. So keep this, take it, write in it all the time, and then every six, seven days, or seven days as you go to community group, whatever night that is, bring this with you, and then you've got um, all kinds of notes from the sermon, all kinds of notes from reading, and then y'all can talk about some of the insights that you're getting each week in your reading. So grab one of these and make sure you use it. Um, as I said, we're going to be in Psalm 15 today, uh, and I'm going to pray first, and then we will we'll jump in. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your loving mercy towards us. Thank you for your kindness. I pray that you would be with us now as we look into your word. Um, It's, it's quite a task, Lord, for, uh, for anyone that's going through any book, but even in the Old Testament, the Psalms, to connect it to the big picture story. And I pray that you would help me do that this morning. I pray for us all as we hear from your word, that we would be focused on who you are. We'd be focused on the fact that since this is your word, that you can use it and that you have promised to use it to train us in righteousness and to grow us in our faith. I pray that as we look into the psalm, that we will see Christ and that our affections for him will be moved and that we would want to think about this amazing question that's being asked in verse 1. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, we're in Psalm chapter 15. um, And every week that we are going through uh, really anywhere in the Bible, because we're going to be preaching through the entire Bible this year um, as you're reading through it, we're wanting to connect wherever we fall that particular week in scripture up to the meta-narrative, the big picture story. So from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible we believe is just one huge big story. And so anywhere in that that history line that we're finding ourselves, we're wanting to connect that to the big picture story that's going on in the Bible. The big picture story is God redeeming man. That's that's what the entire Bible stories about for his own glory. And so we want you to see how each and every passage relates to that big picture story. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 15 all the way through and then we'll, we'll jump in. If you will, stand with me as we read Psalm chapter 15. We do this every once in a while just as a reminder um, of, of the word um, that these are God's words and that we should be reverent with them. So Psalm chapter 15, verse 1. O Lord, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart? Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend? In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change? who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. You can have a seat. It's the word of the Lord. So if you have, uh, some of you do, an English study, uh, English uh, standard version study Bible, Um, In the very beginning, in your little notes, it says something about this psalm. It says that this hymn is celebrating the ideal worshiper of the Lord. And in a lot of ways, that's right. In a lot of ways, that's right. We see in the very beginning this opening question in verse 1. And then after it asks this question, David, the writer, attempts to answer this question. You can see the question in verse 1. The the outline of the the psalm is pretty simple. Question, and here's the answer. Verse 1 is the question. You can see it. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So there's this big, huge question. Who can come before your presence, O God? And so in your English version study Bible, and and maybe even in some of your other versions, it says something like this. This is a hymn celebrating the ideal worshiper of the Lord. In and, and, and some ways, that's true. In some ways, I believe that to be true. That's just a comment. That's not the, the, That little part in your study Bible is not like David wrote that. So it's a comment. And In a lot of ways, that's right. Here's why. Because it's thought, and we don't know for sure, but it's thought that this particular psalm, chapter 15, it was written by David, but at a certain specific time. If you'll notice, uh, switch over to Psalm 24, it's about four pages to the right, you'll notice that in Psalm chapter 24, verses two and three, it starts off very similarly. It says, starting at verse three and four, it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And that it answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. So you can see that it keeps going, but you can also see in this particular um, psalm and 24 it seems to have some triumph at the end where it says he received blessing from the lord such as the generation of those who seek him who seek the face lift up your heads O gates be lifted O ancient so it's who is this king of glory that the king of so we see there's a little bit more of kind of triumph but in 15 it's it's not exactly the same so here's here's what the most commentators i read uh kind of Look at the two and they try to make a guess, and we don't know for sure, but it makes sense. Try to make a guess at the difference between Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 and what's going on. If you remember a little while ago, uh, we talked about David and how he wanted to bring the ark in to Jerusalem. And we talked about this during, during uh, our, our Christmas series. And whenever he was wanting to bring the ark in, he attempted to bring it in. And when they first tried to bring it in, they put it on a cart. And as they were putting it on a cart, it was rolling. Um, and I can't remember his name, but he reached out. And he, he, when he t- touched it, nice guy, to keep it steady, he ended up falling dead. And then they had to like, we can't bring the ark anymore. It's too dangerous. We're going to leave it here at Obed Edom's house. And so when they left it at Obed-Edom's house, they went home. And then for a little bit longer, David was kind of perplexed. And he wanted to bring that ark in. He wanted to bring the ark in. And so he finally went back and got it. Well, the idea is uh, the first time after they went to try to get the ark and bring it in, they were unsuccessful. When David went back to Jerusalem and they didn't have it, he penned number 15. He he penned Psalm 15. This idea, he's dwelling on the holiness of God he's dwelling on the presence of God being here and what that represents and and it wasn't able to come in and he's thinking well then who can do it who can so who can come into or be in the presence of God and then he, he lists these kinds of people that can do it well uh, most commentators think that they, whenever they finally brought in the ark, that's when he wrote Psalm 24, a- asking that same question, but maybe with a little bit more triumph there in the end of 24, because they successfully brought it in, and the, the presence of the Lord was with them. So in a lot of ways, your ESV study Bible that says, this hymn is celebrating the ideal worshiper of the Lord, the one that maybe can usher in or can be in the presence of God and not be killed. Um, Maybe that is true. Maybe that is the, 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 the ideal description of the worshiper of the Lord. But um, we're, going to, we're going to, I think, be confronted with a little bit more regarding this question that maybe it's a little bit more and a little bit deeper if we're looking at the grand narrative of Scripture that it doesn't just, and, and, and as we read it, it, it does describe for us the ideal worshiper of the Lord. It does give us descriptions of ourselves, but there's something deeper. So questions, we ask Lots of questions all the time. If you have children, you're asked questions incessantly. Why is this going on? What's that? What's over there? What does this do? How does this work? There's all kinds of questions. Where can I go? How can I do this? How are we going to buy this? How are we going to do that? Do we really need another child? I mean, all kinds of things like that, right? We have all kinds of kinds of questions that pop into our head all the time. Um, however, there's specific times of our life where the questions that we ask become a little bit deeper become a little bit more pointed, become a little bit more big picture. Um, I, uh, I was privileged to serve a family this past Friday to do a funeral. Um, and, and in those kinds of moments to do funerals, that's when we ask, start asking, I, I would say, more pointed, more big picture questions. And as I was there um, at the funeral preaching, my goal in that in that moment was to try to answer what are the big picture questions of life. It's in these kinds of occasions where we realize our, our kind of finality, we realize that we aren't eternal, that we're finite, that we start asking these bigger picture questions of what am I here for, what's this life all about, etc. And so that's, that's where this chapter 15, the Psalm 15 verse 1 is going. It's asking possibly the most important question there is. It's asking these big picture questions that when we really pause, instead of kind of the the smaller questions that are still maybe of some importance, it's asking these big picture questions. The Hebrew speech, as it's it's asking it in verse 1, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? It's asking this, who has the right to live in the presence of God? Who has the right to live in the presence of God? And Psalm 15 is going to give us this crucial question in verse 1. But after that, the rest of verses 2 through 5, I'm going to submit to you is, yes, in some ways, it's going to give us a description of an ideal worshiper, a, a, a target for us as believers to try to live by. However, I don't think the answer is that simple. As we hear this crucial question, which is, who has the right to live in the presence of God? The answers that come to us are actually not just a target for us to try to shoot for, but instead, um, I think the answer is crushing to us. It's crushing. It's supposed to crush you before you realize that this is something that you are to live into. Now, another interesting thing one commentator pointed out that Psalm 15 bears a striking resemblance to the Sermon on the Mount... Um, that there are a lot of, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it starts with Beatitudes, which kind of gives us gospel, and then it has some descriptions of Christian living with a little kind of assurance or warning there at the very end. This has similar kind of outlines as well. It's, it's like as Jesus was given that great, the greatest sermon ever. Psalm 15 could have been kind of a, a faint outline in the back of his mind as he was giving us the Sermon on the Mount, because it's going to give a similar kind of thing. The question here that's being asked of us where it says, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? This is asking who is appointed to be the divine welcome guest in God's house? Which is, if you remember, this is the end for which humans were created. In in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve did enjoy being a welcome guest before the presence of God. They were given the right by God to live in his presence. This is what you were made for. This is what I were made for. It's what all humans were made for, which is to live in the presence of God. This is why you have life. This is why you have breath. So the crucial question is, who has the right to do what he was actually created to do? What human alive has the right to do what he was actually created to do to be in front of God and enjoying his presence the crushing answer is this and uh, we need to we need to feel this don't don't zoom past this if you've been in church for 25 years as you hear this answer let the full weight of the impossibility of it fall on your shoulders here's the answer Who has the right to live in the presence of God? I want you to honestly assess just yourself this week and see if if this describes you. Only the person who is purely righteous, only the person who is perfectly holy, has the right to live before God. Only that person. That is a crushing answer to us. I would would love to be able to stand before you and say, as I studied Psalm 15 and thought and dwelt and thought and dwelt and thought and dwelt on Psalm 15, I would love to say that Psalm 15, as we're looking at the answers of, as some commentators say, the ideal worshiper, that this describes me perfectly this past week. That, The crucial question is who has the right to actually do what he's created to do? Psalm 15 tells me, and since I know it, then I am one of these people that is considered purely righteous and perfectly holy as I tried to live out my faith this week. But the answer is I'm not. not. Not by myself. So when we hear this, who has the right to do what you were created to do? The crushing answer should devastate us. It should absolutely devastate us. Now, there is hope. Don't, don't feel like, well, gosh, Fudd, you're, you're making this it, really terrible. I'm going to get some coffee and leave. Um, like, I want you to, I want you to feel what we're, what we're designed to feel as David writes this. And even as we go through the answers, I want you to feel these things that he's telling us. Calvin, as he's, as he's looking at this particular teaching in verses 1 and following, he says that there is a threefold use of the doctrine that's being asked. In other words, this means three important things to understand regarding people that are entering and occupying a place at the temple. Or we can say there's three things that we need to understand about the church, about the people, not, not the building, the people. Three things that we should understand of those who are gathered together each week that call themselves the church. He says this, and this is quite interesting, quite interesting what he says. Remember, this was written 500 years ago, quite quite um, amazing insights. He says, first thing is that the Holy Ghost teaches us, and I just like it because he says the Holy Ghost, by the way. The Holy Ghost, I'm gonna start using that Holy Ghost instead of Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost teaches us that we must be holy and live an upright life. That's one of the first things as the church gathered or the church scattered that we as a church if we call ourselves members of the church that we must realize that this is calling us then that we as 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 the holy as the church that the holy ghost is teaching us that we must be holy and live an upright life as believers in christ there's there's no um kind of like can i do this can i not do this i don't know can can i bargain here the holy spirit is teaching us that we must live a holy and upright life as christians That's that's what is designed as the church. He even goes a little further and says this. A distinction is made in the scriptures between permanent, permanent citizens of the church and strangers mingled among them for only a time. In other words, here on earth, as we gather together in the church, there are going to be people that call themselves members of the church. However... Unbeknownst to them, they are not actually, as he says, citizens, permanent citizens of the church, but instead they are stranger, strangers mingled among them only for a time. This means that they're not truly regenerate. They're not truly Christians. That they think they are, they may act like it, they may give to the, to the uh, mission fund and become a deacon in the church or something, but they have never truly been regenerate. They have never truly placed their faith in Christ and thrown themselves completely on the mercy and say, I have absolutely no way to ever live in your presence unless it's because of Jesus. Calvin also says this. A th- third thing is, um, this is reaching over to Jack's sermon from Psalm 1 as he talked about the, the chaff. Whenever they would get stuff and they would throw it up, the wind would be so hard in this This threshing floor of where they were, it would be windy and they would throw the wheat up and the wind would be so hard that the things that weren't the good wheat, the chaff would kind of blow away. And he uses that illustration as the chaff are the unregenerate. And he says this, Calvin says, God's sacred barn door will not be perfectly cleansed before that last day. In other words, not all the chaff until the very last day is is definitely going to be blown away. God's sacred barn door will not be perfectly cleansed before that last day. But when Christ comes, he will cast out all the chaff. But he has already begun to do this by the doctrine of the gospel. And this is awesome. He calls the gospel, which on this account, he terms a fan. Like you can consider this big, huge box fan sitting here. I mean, just this massive box fan, like the football players in the hot summer where they sit on the bench and it has this huge fan. The gospel is this big, massive fan blowing at there and it's saying the only way to know Christ, the only way that you can come to know Jesus is through faith in Jesus and that alone. And it's taking all those who are regenerate and those who are fake, it's just kind of blowing them out. Here, as the gospel, he's, he's terming it a fan, and he's saying it's not going to get it all. The box fan of the gospel is not going to get it all. One day when Christ comes, he's going to separate it all. But Calvin points to us before we go into seeing some of these answers. As we look into the church, there are going to be people that are truly regenerate, and as they're truly regenerate, then they are going to realize that they must live a holy and upright life. Christians, we don't have any choice in that. We don't have any choice. And we don't take weeks off. We don't take months off. We don't disregard sin. We don't sometimes hate sin and sometimes be okay with sin. But he's also saying that inside the church, there are going to be strangers that will be mingled in who will think they're regenerate, but they're not. And also, there are going to be some that the gospel is going to come and blow them away like chaff, but it won't be fully cleansed. And then as Jesus finally comes, the true church will be with him forever. And there'll be some, as it says in Matthew 7, uh, verse, I think it's uh, 21. Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? And he's going to say, away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. And those are the final bits of chaff being blown out. So here we're getting to, that's the question in verse 1. We need to realize there's going to be be people that don't follow the answers of 2 through 5. Now, the answers in 2 through 5, really 5B, 5A, because 5B is a turn, the answers are quite striking, and you're going to notice that the answers begin in kind of general principled living, and then after that, they move to really specifics. Now, the specifics, um, they could go forever, and, and David's going to pick some really specific specifics, if you will, um, but we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to show you the answers. These are all the answers, the general principles and the specifics. So the answer now is coming in verses two through five. The question has been posed. Who can sojourn in the tent? Who can dwell on the holy hill of the Lord? Here's who can. The answers are here in verses two through five A. General principles are just in verse two. Here are the general principles. Here, here are the general answers of those people. There's three of them. First, is he who walks blamelessly. He who walks blamelessly. This means this is uh, someone who walks with t- integrity or walks in sincerity. This means that he has or she has singleness of heart. This is not a divided heart. This is not a heart that's halfway given to God and halfway given to our particular idol. This is singleness of heart. So someone that walks blamelessly is a, is, is a person of integrity, sincerity, singleness of heart, solely devoted unto God. That's the first kind of big picture, general answer. The next one is right after that, he walks blamelessly and does what is right. This is justice. I love how Calvin says this. Calvin says that this is the kind of person that studies to do what is good to your neighbor. Have you ever thought about what you could do for your neighbor and what are their needs? And Calvin points it in a little bit deeper and says, I don't want you to just kind of half-heartedly think about how to love your neighbor well. I want you to literally study how you could do good to your neighbor. Remember in college where you you put on like five pots of coffee and stayed up forever and and, and studied till, at least me, stayed up till like 7 a.m. and tried to learn how to, what am I going to do on this accounting exam? (laughs) Like, I don't know anything. I forgot to go to class this year. And... um, I only went twice. They got the syllabus and they went to the first test, and now I got to go to the second test. And I, I'm I'm freaking out. I, but I studied. I, I studied for as long as I could to try to pass this. And, and that's not that's not a good example. What we mean here is you're literally studying how to serve your neighbor well. That's what we're talking about. He does what is right. He knows who his neighbors are. He knows who his family, and he thinks hard and long about how he can serve them. He doesn't hurt anybody, and he abstains from all wrong. He doesn't hurt his neighbors ever intentionally or his family. He does what is right. So you see that in verse 2, the answer in general principles, the person that can ascend into this hill is the one that walks blamelessly. He does what is right. And lastly, he speaks truth in his heart. Now, the in his heart is a, is a Hebrew phrase. We don't necessarily use that phrase, but I'll tell you what it means. Speaks truth in his heart. It means this. It doesn't mean like he only talks, when he talks to himself, he says true things, but out loud, he just says false things. That's not what it means. It means that in their speech, it's true. The Hebrew idiom or the Hebrew expression, it is adding in his heart to say that there is are agreement. There is harmony between his heart and his tongue. Whenever his heart thinks something that is true, the thing that actually comes out is also the true thing. There's an agreement between the two. This is a vivid representation of the hidden affections or the feelings that are within him are always constantly coming out of his mouth and they are in agreement or in harmony with one another. So he speaks the truth in his heart. He says things that are true. Now we talk, we're in constant conversations all the time. So when we look at this and this general principled idea and we say there's three things that we need to realize, who who has the right to be in God's presence? The people that walk blamelessly. I mean, I already feel... Counted out. The people that do what is right and the people that speak truth. And as we're talking about speaking, we need to realize that we're in constant conversations, not just with other people, but also with ourselves. So those who speak truth in their heart, I want you to think of it in two separate ways. Number one, to yourself. This, these are the words and language and conversations that no one else hears besides you and you and you. Realize that you're in constant conversation with yourself. And so I wanted to ask you this. What are you telling yourselves when you talk to yourself? What are the reasons? What are the excuses that you use? Or maybe we could say it this way. What is the good news that you're fi- constantly telling yourself about who you are? You're in constant conversation with yourself. So are you, are you speaking truth to your own heart? But also... We talk to other people. We talk to others. Spurgeon captures this, I think, the best. Um, Spurgeon says it this way, and I think this is, when we we talk with other people, we are constantly tempted to do a lot of things. Make ourselves, kind of prop ourselves up to look awesome or prop ourselves up to look more intelligent than we are. Uh, Not tell the full truth on things. This is what he says. So in our conversation to others, he says, these particular men that love God, that that want to live the way they should, the the people that speak truth in their heart, these men scorn double meanings. They scorn evasions. You ever try to evade the right answers? They scorn equivocations. They scorn white lies. They scorn flatteries. And they scorn deceptions. Half-truth is a full lie. They tell the truth and they don't evade and they don't equivocate and they don't give flattery to people just to try to gain more status with them. They don't tell white lies. They don't deceive. So this is what we mean in general principles. Who can answer or who can come into his hill? Those who walk blamelessly, those who do what is right and those who speak truth in his heart. So let's ask this question before we move into the specific examples. Who or what owns your heart. There's a constant war for the for the turf of your heart. Constant. There are a lot of things that try to call you away from Jesus. So who or what are these things? Are you painstakingly like aware of this or maybe not aware to your own detriment? Those are the general principles if we're going to describe the person that can ascend into his holy hill or dwell on his holy hill. Now, in verse 3, through the middle of 5, David's going to get a little bit more specific. Um, They even go a little bit beyond from what the general law would require. There are are certain vices, as we look at verses 3 through 5, that Christians are to be free of. Now, these vices being described in 3 through 5, I forget which commentator said this. Uh, He said that these specific vices actually have social ramifications, that they actually promote the well-being of family. They promote the well-being of church. They promote the well-being of your community. If you do these things, then promotion of the welfare of others, the reputation of others, promotion of the church's Holiness as a whole is 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 going increasing. Um, it promotes justice, uh, social justice. It promotes um, others being more more lifted up rather than personal gain. So there's there's a lot of social ramifications as we look at these things that can happen if we attempt to do these things. So. There's five specifics. We talked about the three generals in verses two and verses three through middle of five. There's gonna be five specifics. And these, these are giving us the answers on who can ascend into the holy hill of God. Verse three, who does not slander with his tongue. This just simply means that when other people are, are not, when the people are not around you, that you don't bite their back. You don't talk about them, you don't slander them, you don't say things about them, true or untrue, when they are not around, that bring down their name. True or untrue. I've heard people say something silly, like it's not gossip if what you say is true. It's not slander if what you say is true. That's ridiculous. (laughs) True or untrue, if you're talking about them and they're not present and it causes everyone around to have a lower view of them that's slander that's gossip so these particular people don't do that the second one they restrain themselves from doing anything mischievous or injurious injurious I should say to their neighbors it says in verse 3 they do, do no evil to evil to their neighbor so for example back then in the day it would be wrong to TP your neighbor's house, or I should say TP your neighbor's tent. You know, they didn't even have houses. Um, or throw eggs at their tent or whatever, you know. So we're thinking, I know that's kind of a ridiculous example, but those things are mischievous or injurious that teenagers do, you know, those kinds of things. Or you can put it on a much bigger kind of scale. Um, let's use real, real examples. So I'll give, it, I'll give, I'll give a mischievous example from my own life. I don't know why I'm going to do this. That wasn't planned but here's here's a mischievous example. That's a bad idea. When I was in college, um, we had a campus minister. His name was Marty. He was awesome, um, and he was a campus minister at Charleston Southern. He moved down to Savannah, and so <clears throat> he had been gone for about six to eight months. And we thought it would be awesome to go give a visit to Marty. And so we got a hundred rolls of toilet paper and drove down to Marty's house in Savannah and found his house and from 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., rolled his house. And we put like a camera on the on the, on the uh, mailbox and set, hit play. And if you watch it and fast forward, it's kind of funny that we dance around and you can see it going up. And we didn't tell Marty. We didn't tell Marty. And we made this video and we thanked him for letting him us roll his house on the video, all this kind of stuff. Now, I was in college, and this was not a smart thing to do. Um, But I didn't love him well. He, He later, like a year or two later, we finally confessed to him, and he told me that even his neighbors were mad at him. His neighbors were like really green, uh, even back before Green was being cool and like they were really mad at him that they wasted this much paper. Um, and so in that moment, I'm using myself as a negative example. We didn't love Marty well. We didn't let Marty love his neighbors well. There's all kinds of things that we did wrong. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about, mischievous or injurious to their neighbors. But here's, here's maybe some better examples, which is we, uh, some real examples is that we have, n- if we're going to love our neighbors well, we're going to strain from doing anything that would be injurious to them. We're not going to constantly act in in times of selfishness. We're not going to have moments when we're with our neighbors of impatience or quick irritation with them because their problem or their situation inconveniences our desired thing that we need to do in those particular moments. Or we're not going to lash out at our children or neighbors or those closest to us with unkind words. We're not going to push ourselves to the center of attention to remove people who maybe seriously have some serious problems that need to be served or helped. We're not going to neglect to take care of our neighbor's needs uh, we're not going to neglect, as Calvin would say, I said earlier, the study of how we can best serve our neighbors. Th- this is what we mean by mischievous mischievous, or injurious to the neighbors, is that really we just kind of intentionally keep ourselves as the center of attention. We're not going to do that. That's, that's not what they do. Here's another one. It says it in the end of verse 3. Nor takes up reproach against his friend. Nor takes up reproach. This is giving currency or giving weight, or saying that what someone is saying is valid to gossip or slander. So that means it's not you. It means that when someone else says something gossipy or slanders about somebody, without that person there, um, your silence will give credibility to it. I'll say it this way. It's a sin to give credibility to slanderers, meaning... Whether you join in and say something or you just remain silent and don't say anything. That's the same thing. So the person that can ascend into the holy hill of God is not the person that gives validity or credibility to people that are slandering. Whether you join in or just remain silent. I don't, I just, it's easier for me just to not say anything because I'm not, I'm not a person that stands up for, for people. It's easier. That's the same thing. This kind of person won't do that. All right, so in verse 4, we're going to have this kind of contrast, but we're still going to get two more things. In verse 4, you can see there's a contrast between the vile person and the person that honors God. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but, who, but honors those who fear the Lord. So there's a contrast now between vile people and those who fear the Lord. The vile person, those people are despised. Those are people who love sin and condone the sin of others Continually. Those are the vile people. And then in the other contrast, we have those who fear the Lord. And the, those who fear the Lord, people honor them. Those are people who love and fear the Lord. All right, so we have this contrast. And there's, there's some things that happen as we look at that. And we're still, as we're doing that, describing the person that can ascend into the holy hill of God in verse 1. And it's just telling us those are the people that, who fear the Lord, the people that don't are vile. So then it says in verse 4, right at the very end of verse 4, it says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This simply means this, that they, they are promise keepers. And not the movement from the early 90s or whatever it was, but they're literally like, they're the pro- they keep their promises. It's, it means it this way. The word says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change means this, that he keeps his promises even when it costs him. Even when he realized that it's going to cost him, makes a promise. He doesn't think it's going to cost him anything. And then once he realizes that it's going to cost him, he doesn't seek to get out of the promise because he gave himself as a man or woman of God to make this promise. Therefore, he's now going to keep his promise. So when it says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Once I've made my promise, even if it's going to cost me something or hurt me, I'm not going to change. I'm going to keep my promise anyway. That's what we're talking about. So the fourth one, this fourth specific is they're promise keepers. They're promise keepers. And then lastly, you'll see it in verse 5. It's those first two lines in verse 5. Who does not put out his own money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So in both of those two lines, there's an issue of money, financial gain. I would say specifically sinful financial gain. So financial gain in and of itself is not sinful. We all have to gain money in this world if we want to eat and have a house and have a car and take care of our kids and do all the things that God's called you to do as a husband or wife or, or whatever. So making money is not wrong. There are two specific ways given in this text that making money would be wrong. Namely, usury or exorbitant overcharging of interest, what he says, those who put out his money at interest, and this is talking about exorbitant interest, or taking bribes. So in this verse, sinful financial gain is overcharging interest or taking a bribe, that's trying to entice, having an, an outcome happen by being enticed with money. Either way, this man, this man is tempted by financial gain. Sinful financial gain, I should say. So, A person that is able to ascend into the holy hill of God is one that's not tempted by sinful, and that's such a key word, sinful financial gain. This means this. His business dealings and the way that he earns money, they're always upright. They're never, ever shady. They're never, ever questionable. They're always upright. And he's unwilling to be bought. He's unwilling to be bought. There's no bribe. I mean, when I read that, I just think, is there a price that, you, that I could be bought at, or you? Is there a price that we could be bought at to give away our integrity, to give away our single-mindedness towards walking with God, to give away what verse two describes us as, as someone that would walk blamelessly, does what is right, and speak truth in our heart? Is there a cost that you would say yes to? So here's the thing. We've seen the question and we've seen the answers. We've gone through all the general principles and we've gone through all the specific examples. So here's where we come to the question. Who here then can go dwell with God? Anyone? Anyone here feel like that they can go now live in the presence of God? Who has done these things perfectly? Now now I want you to feel the weight of that and understand why I termed it in the very beginning of the sermon the crushing answer. Because no one here can. No one. Not one person. Ever. This is a problem. Because it's saying that we, none of us, can do what we were created to do. You were created to do it and have no ability to. This is the one thing that you were made for, to live in the presence of God, and we can't do it. We just see this description, and all it does is absolutely crush us. The answer, as we're reading it, maybe if you've always kind of had this kind of lofty, awesome view of God, and everything's wonderful all the time, and God loves me no matter what, we read this, and we kind of say, well, the answer must be I can do it. And when we get through the end, the answer is quite astonishing, and I would say quite unexpected. Because when we get through it, it's it's not necessarily describing the ideal worshiper. Instead, it's indicting me and saying, I can't do what I was created to do. I have no hope to do it. I want you to read this. Don't miss this very end. This is where we get into something. Don't put up up the last thing yet. Just leave it just like that. Listen to this. The, The last sentence is absolutely key. He... Who does these things shall never be moved. Okay, listen. We're, we're so tempted. We're so tempted constantly to read the Bible and think it's about us. I mean, it's it's our natural inclination. And perhaps this is maybe how David was, was writing it, but he's he's writing it by the power of the Spirit to talk about the meta-narrative, not just in his situation where he wants the ark, and like Obed Edom's got it. He's talking also about the meta narrative. So in that situation, yes, I think he's saying the person that, that can actually be with God in his presence is all these things and we can live by the law, etc. And they're trying to understand faith and they're trying to understand the coming Messiah. But when you don't read verse 5, he who does these things shall never meet. Don't read verse 5 and say, okay then, well I've got some work to do because I want to be in that place. I want that to be, I, when I read that, when Fud says, who can do it? I can do it. I'm, I'm really working hard now. Don't ever say to yourself, he who does these things should never be moved. Well, I don't want to ever be moved, so I better get to work for Jesus so that he is me. It's a danger. It's a huge danger. Spurgeon looks at this and he says, we see clearly that the he is only our spotless Lord Jesus. It's only our spotless Lord Jesus who has the right to, To live and dwell before the presence of the Lord? Answer, Jesus. Because he is the only one who walks blameless. He's the only one that does what's right, he's the only one that speaks truth in his heart. He's the only one that never slanders. He's the only one that studies that he would always do right to his neighbor. He's the only one that doesn't take up reproach against a friend. He's always the one who fears the Lord and honors him. He's always the one that keeps his promises no matter the cost. Once he gets into it and he realizes it's gonna cost way more than he thinks, namely his life, which yet he already knew. He does it anyway. He's the one that does not take a bribe whenever Satan was tempting him. You can have all these things. He's like, no. He's the one that doesn't give up for financial gain. Spurgeon says, we see clearly that it is our spotless Lord Jesus. We must realize verse 5b or c or whichever that is in 5, he who does these things shall never be moved, is describing Christ first and primarily. Then, then, For those that are believers in Jesus, as Calvin said, that first level of people, those, as he said, are the ones that are, the Holy Ghost is teaching them that they must live a holy and upright life because they already have faith in Christ. They are not the chaff. chaff. They are not going to be blown away by the big fan of the gospel one day. But instead, they are trusting in Christ alone as their only righteousness. Spurgeon says and those that are conformed into his image. We see clearly that it's only talking about Jesus. And after that, secondly, we see those that are conformed into his image. Then they can stand with acceptance before he uses the word majesty. Let that word sink in on you from last week. Majesty on high. And then he says this. He's so good with words. Without the wedding dress of righteousness in Christ Jesus, we have no right to sit at the banquet of communion. Without uprightness of walk, we are not fit for the imperfect church on earth. And certainly, we must not hope to enter the perfect church above. And that's only given to us by Christ. Christ is the one who has done all these, these answers, the general and the specifics, perfectly. And then it has been, by faith, imputed and declared to be true of us. You didn't do these answers in order to ha- earn this. But now that you have been given this, now you look at those answers not as a means of justification, but as a way to live in your sanctification. Because Jesus was never moved, we can now never be moved because of Jesus. Because Jesus dwells with God, one day we will be able to dwell with God. And it's because of Jesus. Because Christ is the one that walked blamelessly and always did what was right and always spoke the truth. Now we can walk blamelessly. We can do what is right. We can always speak the truth in our heart. And it's only because of Christ. Because Jesus, never slandered, was the perfect neighbor. He kept his promises. He never took a bribe. We can also now never be slanderers, always do good to our neighbors, never gossip and never backbite, always be promise keepers and never be tempted for financial gain. Now, because Christ has given us these things. So as we look at this, verse 1 feel this now. For those of you that are in Christ, Hebrews says that you can boldly answer this. Consider the crushing answer is that no one here can do it. But now we've realized those who are in Christ can boldly listen. Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The crushing answer is no one. But now Feel the beauty, feel the weight come off of your shoulders, maybe again. Because of Christ, you can boldly say, God, I'm not worthy, but I can. You have now made me worthy to be able to do the very thing that I was created to do, namely live before you. You have given me the right because of Jesus to be the person that can come now before your presence so in this place as we're gathered together as the church we are in his tent if you will we are on his holy hill not not the perfect one not in heaven yet but certainly a picture so what do we do What, what will we do there will bow down we'll worship we'll adore him we'll honor him and therefore that's what we do now certainly we strive to live out these answers in our everyday life but when we come together corporately we do what we're told here we come before him and worship and bow down we honor him We worship and adore him. Let's do that now. God, thank you for your love and mercy towards us in Christ. God, the weight of this verse certainly can be overbearing. But for those who are in Christ, God, I pray for us all that it would just be unbelievably joyous. because of jesus the answer is not anymore no one the answer is we can we can come before you and live and dwell in your presence we can walk blamelessly for your glory we can do what is right for your glory we can speak the truth in our heart now because of you and for your glory So I pray that we all would think about the fact that we are in the tent right now as your church. We are on the holy hill right now as your church. And that we would worship accordingly. Whatever in our mind we've conceived of, as if we thought we were truly in the presence of God, the way that we would posture ourselves, I pray that that we would realize that we are there now. And that's how we would worship. Praise in Jesus' name.